This podcast is an examination of the historical research of William Branham and his message cult following. William Branham was a minister in the gambling town of Jeffersonville, Indiana, just across the river from Louisville, Kentucky, as early as 1933. He came in contact with the Reverend Roy E. Davis, an official spokesperson for the 1915 Ku Klux Klan, and later Imperial Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. Davis introduced Branham to the Pentecostal faith and the art of faith healing, which would later be introduced into Branham's stage persona as he took his place among the evangelists in the post-World War II healing revival. Branham is credited by some as being a catalyst for the Latter Rain Movement and Jim Jones of People's Temple. This podcast is not sympathetic to the views of the Ku Klux Klan that William Branham held, but it is disturbing and warrants research. This podcast is an examination of that research. You can find more about this research and other topics on the website william-branham.org. Join us as we turn back the pages of time and examine the controversial issues of William Branham and his message. I've mentioned this before, but I'd like to expand on it a bit. Many of the people in cities around the world who follow our site and who still follow the message of William Marion Branham, they've written in to ask us where William Branham prayed to an angel. In their hearts, even though they still follow the message of the hour, as it's called, they still know that praying to an angel is an abomination before God. Though his description of it changed often, William Branham claimed to have had an angel on the platform with him during his ministry. In fact, he claims to have met the angel in a cabin, or a cave, depending on which version of the story he told. And he claimed that he could do nothing without that angel present. Was an angel really with him? This is a loaded question. Though there's enough evidence of contradictions in Branham's own words to make the story seem like a small schoolchild telling a big, big fib, I personally believe it is possible. And this sends cold chills up my spine after learning the truth about the supreme deity of God. You see, God is not an angel. God is worthy of all worship and praise, even from the angels. To pray to an angel would be to worship it, which the Bible strictly forbids. Yet, in 1948, we find William Branham doing just that. March 5th, 1948, in a sermon that's entitled, At Thy Word, Lord, it's in paragraph 48, he starts a prayer. He says, Now shall we bow our heads for prayer, Father, realizing that I be afraid to step into this realm now without you would hold my hand. Now my mind is going back to around two years ago when in the room that night that angel of God came walking in there and said you are born in this world to take a gift of divine healing to the people. Many will not believe you yet many will. If you'll be sincere 
and get the people to believe you, William Branham, not even cancer will stand before your prayer, William Branham. Now notice in the first part, he's praying to the Father. And he said that he was afraid to enter into this realm. This, the chills up my spine continue to grow because this is the very thing that sorcerers did in the Old Testament. This is the very thing that the Mosaic Law called an abomination worthy of stoning. And he says if you get the people to believe you. Now, now picture the Father in Heaven telling William Branham that if you'll just believe William Branham, forget about my only son who died on the cross. If we'll get the people to believe you, William Branham, not even cancer will stand in your way. This is very, very, very bad. Because worship should be alone in God, not in William Branham. People should believe Christ, not William Branham. But the second part of this prayer gets even worse than that. You see, the second part was not to the Father. It was not even to Jesus Christ. The second part of his prayer was directly to the angel. William Branham says, Angel of God, I do not see you, the angel, but I know that you, the angel, are standing near. Please, thou, the angel, knowest my heart, and I love these people. Stand by me tonight, and may not one go through without faith. And I know that your words, the angel's words, have been true. I've took you at your word, the angel's word. For you said that you were sent from God, and I believed you, the angel. And you've stuck by me. You've confirmed the word with signs following. There's another scripture there, but we're not going to get into it. I will repeat it, though, so that you who know what I'm talking about can search. You have confirmed the word with signs following. Now again, tonight, in this March the 5th, Memorial Night, may you stand now, the angel, and heal everyone, grant it. May every demon be submissive to the name of Jesus Christ. And now, Father... Now he's going back and speaking to the Father. I step out here in this realm of spirit faith, challenging every demon that's in here in the name of Jesus Christ. Now this is a man standing between God and the demons. And there is power in the name of Jesus Christ. Were a satanic worshiper to stand and use the name of Jesus Christ, he would have power over the demons because the power is in the name of Christ. Now, the organization that publishes William Branham's sermons capitalized every single reference to this angel in the same way that they capitalized the name of Jesus Christ. Though the editors are reading the very same abomination that I'm reading, they also worship the angel. Branham makes a very clear separation between God and the angel. Because he says that the angel was sent from God. And not by William Branham's own understanding. He says that he trusted it 
not to have lied to him. Not that he trusted God to protect him. He trusted the angel not to have lied to him. And this reminds me exactly of what Paul said directly to the Laodiceans. In Colossians 2, Paul condemns the very thing that William Branham did, even in the New Testament, not under the Mosaic Law. <clears throat> Paul says, For I want you to know that how great a struggle I have found for you and for those at Laodicea, for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ, in whom are all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Notice this. All of the mystery was in Christ. There were no, there are no longer hidden things. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And it's almost as if Paul were writing directly to us. Because these plausible arguments are very difficult to see through. And Paul writes this letter so that we are not led astray. He says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, as, the, as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now here comes the warning. Paul says, See to it, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, and here it gets, gets interesting, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Let me repeat that. No one leads you captive according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, Christ, the whole fullness, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled with him who is the head of all rule and all authority. There's no greater authority. We've been warned by Paul not to be led captive, not to create another leader. He says that the entire fullness of rule and authority now from Christ dwells within us. Let's continue. He says, In him, Christ, were you crucified with were you circumcised with the circumcision not made with hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, speaking to the Gentiles, God made alive together with him. Having forgiven us of all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Again, he's speaking to the law. He says, canceling the record of debt. 
that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He didn't say he magnified it. He didn't say that fulfilling meant to make it greater. Paul says this he set aside and nailed it to the cross. Paul says he disarms the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Now, I've been asked many times from many different cities around the world, if not Branham, then whom do we follow? Paul just answers this question directly. He says, no man. Christ disarmed the rulers and the authorities. They're put to shame. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you with questions of food and drink. Let me repeat that. Let no one pass judgments on you with questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are just a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. That's what Paul is saying directly. Paul repeats it. He, the statement that sends cold chills up my spine, this time he sounds like he's speaking to us directly about William Marion Branham himself. He says this, he says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about his visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished, knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows a growth that is from God. Branham held fast to an angel. He even prayed to it. His mind was sensuous. That's why his stories just grew and grew and grew over time. This made him puffed up. So much puffed up that, in fact, in 1965, Branham calls himself Jesus Christ. He insisted on asceticism before the people, denying themselves of the things that they enjoyed or might have enjoyed for a holy cause. And worst of all, he not only worshipped an angel, he even prayed to it. The very last paragraph of this chapter speaks directly against the asceticism that William Branham and those like him tried to spread. Paul says that these teachings come from the elemental spirits. This asceticism comes from those spirits. And the legalism behind them causes us to submit to a fallen angel. He says, <clears throat> if, Christ, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulation? This is Paul speaking, not me. Let me repeat, if with Christ you died to these elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulation? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have been, indeed have an appearance of wisdom, 
appearance, promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, taking the body of Christ around the world and severing it, creating a little bride. But they are no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. As Christians, we should ask ourselves, why did William Branham worship an angel? The Bible itself calls it an abomination. Why did he do it? Why did he pray to it instead of Jesus Christ? After he spoke to the Father, he prayed to the angel instead of Jesus Christ. Isn't Christ our mediator? Were we worshiping an angel by practicing this asceticism that he taught? Were we also an abomination before God? I'll let you decide.